Did you know there are a million different ways to say goodbye? I found a website that lists so longs in more than 450 languages. I brought with me a few pop culture goodbyes this morning. Maybe you've heard some of these fun farewells. Peace out, Girl Scout, my wife's favorite. See you in the funny papers. How about this one? Later, Gator. I'm out of here. Keep your head down. Got a jet. See ya. Wouldn't want to be ya. Catch you on the flip side. Keep it between the white lines. Here's one for us Southerners. Shalom, y'all. And of course, my favorite, don't let the door hit you where the good Lord splits you. (laughs) Well, in contrast to these farewells, in Acts chapter 20, we find one of history's most meaningful farewells. It was delivered by Paul to the Ephesian elders on the beach at Miletus. It was a goodbye packed with principles for God-pleasing ministry. You know, Paul's time in Ephesus had been extremely fruitful. He had lived and labored and loved and preached in Ephesus for three long years, and his ministry had a far-reaching impact. In Acts chapter 19, verse 20, we're told, so the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. We're told that all Asia, an entire region, heard God's word while Paul was in Ephesus. Paul had sunk deep roots in the church at Ephesus. And that's why if he had docked at the port, it would have been a long layover. His many pals would have demanded to see him. At the time, Paul was in a hurry to get to Jerusalem. He had been port hopping down the Turkish coast. Spring had sprung. And Paul knew that the day of Pentecost would be celebrated in Jerusalem with or without him. It had always been Paul's heart to preach Jesus to the Jews. Pentecost was a harvest feast, and that's what Paul was spiritually expecting, a harvest of souls. And so he sailed 28 miles past the port of Ephesus to the beach at Miletus. Paul loved these Ephesians, but with limited time, he decided to host a one-day leadership summit. He'll bless the church by encouraging its elders. And that's where we pick it up here in Acts chapter 20, verse 17. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. Now, we're going to read Paul's sermon to the elders. But often, words alone don't give you a feel for the occasion. Strong bonds existed here. You see, Paul and these elders had shared the same foxhole. They had weathered the same storms together. Eventually, when Paul boards the ship to leave, tears are going to wet the sand. Grown men are going to cry. They weep because Paul told them that they would see his face no more. This reunion isn't just another day at the beach. Verse 18, And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you. You know me, he says. You've seen me. You've watched me. Paul was no ivory tower preacher. He wasn't aloof from the people. 
He was a neighbor to the folks he served. Paul was among them, he says, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. Everywhere Paul had gone, he was persecuted and most often by the Jews. Paul tells us he came serving the Lord with all humility. Boy, too many pastors today have developed an entitlement mentality. They make a few sacrifices and then they think God and the people owe them. Not Paul. He was a giver, not a taker. He served the Lord with humility. And he reminds them how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you. You know, as they say in sports, Paul left it all on the field. Why hold back a kindness for a rainy day when today might be our last day? To spend and be spent was Paul's motto. The apostle's goal was to die with nothing left in his tank. He wanted to leave it all on the field. And then verse 20, And I taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. Everywhere Paul had traveled, he was forewarned about trouble in Jerusalem. And yet the warnings didn't deter him. He says in verse 24, In fact, none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Safety was not Paul's preoccupation. Paul had but one pressing priority, and that was to finish his race with joy and to faithfully preach the gospel of God's grace. He says, and indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Paul knew this would be his last visit with the Ephesians. He would never travel this way again. He says, therefore, I testify to you this day, that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. And you know, at the end of my time with you, I want to be able to say the same. My goal as your pastor is to proclaim to you the whole enchilada. I want to give you all 66 books. I want to take you through the whole counsel of God. Too many pastors today, they preach part and parcel of the Bible. They dwell on their pet subjects here and there. But what people really need is the entire counsel of God's Word. You know, it's been said, it takes the whole Bible to make a whole Christian. I agree. And then Paul tells the elders in verse 28, Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. And boy, this is good advice for anyone in ministry. Notice before a pastor takes heed to the flock, he should first take heed to himself. You know, pastors burn out on ministry for God because they don't receive ministry from God. Hey, the neediest person I know is me. I am. 
Any man's ministry won't last long or be very successful. If you're pouring from an empty cup, every minister's first priority is to take heed to himself, then to God's flock. He says, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. A pastor or an elder cares for God's flock as a shepherd does his sheep. He leads and feeds them. He oversees and undergirds them. But a pastor realizes it's God's flock, not his own. The flock belongs to God. They're loved by God. They were purchased by the blood of God's only son, Jesus. And that makes the flock very, very special. Once a son, he bought his parents an exotic, tropical, talking bird. Paid thousands of dollars for this rare bird. Sent it to them as an anniversary gift. He thought it would keep them company in their old age. Well, after a few days, he called his dad and he asked how he liked the bird. The father replied, son, it was delicious. Your mother and I ate every bite. And pastors need to know that the sheep are not for lamb chops. The flock costs God the blood of his only son. He wants his flock to be nurtured by the pastor, not sacrificed to him. And God also wants the flock protected. For Paul says, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Faithful shepherds feed the flock, but wolves feed on the flock. He says, also from among yourselves, men will rise up. You know, wolves come from two directions. From without the church, but more insidiously, from within the church. When the devil can't defeat a church, guess what he does? He joins it. He can sabotage it from the inside as easily as he can attack it from the outside. Wolves come speaking perverse things, Paul says, to draw away the disciples after themselves. And here's how you identify a wolf. Rather than create Jesus' followers, he creates his own followers. He draws folks after himself. Paul says, therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Boy, with spiritual predators on the prowl, can there be any hope of prosperity for God's flock? Yes. It's his word that builds us up and guarantees for us an inheritance. Our safety is staying in the scriptures. Paul taught them to continue in the word of God's grace. And then verse 33, he says, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel, Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who were with me. In other words, Paul wasn't after their money. Often he worked secular jobs to provide for himself and his entourage so that he wouldn't be a burden on the church. Paul says, I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, It is more blessed to give 
than to receive. Paul lived to exemplify that it's more fun to be a giver than it is a taker. Have you found that to be true? It's true. And by the way, where did Paul get this quote from Jesus? He says, as our Lord Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. This is often called the supreme beatitude. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Where did Paul get it? (laughs) Well, we have no idea. It's not in the Gospels anywhere. Paul must have had another source. Well, he goes on and he says, And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him. These are grown men now, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him to the ship. As Shakespeare said, parting is such sweet sorrow. The elders have left encouraged and instructed while Paul set sail with the Ephesians on his heart. And then Acts 21. Now it came to pass that when he had departed from them and set sail, running a straight course, we came to Kaz, the following day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. Now here a map is helpful. These are all port cities on what is today the Turkish Riviera, or what's often called the Turquoise Coast in southwest Turkey. Paul and his entourage, they were skipping along the coast, looking for passage on a larger ship that could cross the Mediterranean and land them in Israel. We're told in finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. Their destination were the Phoenician ports of Tyre and Sidon in what is today modern-day Lebanon, north of Israel. Luke says, when we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria, and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload her cargo. And notice this. Obviously, Paul isn't in a first-class cabin on a carnival cruise. He hitched a ride on a freighter. Paul's goal was not how he would roll. It was who he could reach. And when the ship finally docked in Tyre, it had carried Paul 400 miles across the Mediterranean, under the island of Cyprus, and to the shores of Phoenicia, where we're told in verse 4, And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. Now, I'm sure Paul was tired when he got to Tyre. You knew that was coming, didn't you? But notice how he recharges his batteries here. Rather than seek isolation, rather than, oh, I need to go find a room and crash for a few days. No. He finds fellowship and finding disciples. We stayed there seven days. He finds fellowship. Never underestimate the renewing and rejuvenating power of hanging out with other believers, of enjoying Christian fellowship. Fellowship with other believers is strategic for even a hearty believer like Paul. And pay attention to verse 4. The phrase translated finding disciples implies an extensive search. Paul went out of his way to locate the local Christians. He had to find some fellowship. 
Notice you find fellowship. It doesn't just come to you. And this is what's involved for us to find meaningful fellowship. You know, it takes nothing to attend church, but you have to find fellowship. You have to exert some initiative and search outside your comfort zone if you want to find fellowship. You've got to rub shoulders with multiple folks until you find your niche. You know, it's funny, talk to some people who have attended our church for a few weeks, and they've made all kinds of connections, and they'll say, this is the friendliest church on the planet. And yet other folks, they've been coming for years, and they still feel like a stranger. They complain about how unfriendly we are. What's the difference? Well, those who really get plugged in are those who go out to find fellowship. To find disciples, whereas those who never did sat back and waited to be found. Well, hey, Paul went out and found disciples. And they had a message for him, verse 4. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. Now, New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce, he translates through the Spirit as under prophetic inspiration. It was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Earlier in Acts chapter 19, verse 21, we're told that Paul purposed in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And yet here the Holy Spirit throws up a warning sign. Thus, there's a question that arises. Was it the Holy Spirit's will for Paul to go to Jerusalem? On the one hand, we're told the Spirit told him to go. On the other hand, here he's being told not to go by the Holy Spirit. So what was it? Was he to go or was he not to go? And to me, the answer is clear. I have no idea. (laughs) And I'm not alone. Good Bible commentators, they line up on both sides here. They're divided. You know, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you realize that discerning God's will is not an exact science. Has that dawned on you yet? You know, often our vision gets murky. And yet Paul's life here gives us hope. Its twists and turns demonstrate that if we're sincere, God is faithful. You know, I have discovered that though sometimes it's hard to discern God's will, in the end, God is always faithful to get me where I need to be. Hope you've discovered the same. You know, God wants us in his will more than we do. I learned a long time ago to put my trust in God's willingness to guide my life more so than in my ability to listen to God. God has ways. He gets us where he wants us to be when we trust him. Notice verse 5. When we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went on our way. And they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city And we knelt down on the shore and prayed. This is interesting to me. Paul and the Phoenicians had become fast friends. And when he sets out for Jerusalem, they go out to see him off. But realize, Paul is rejecting their warnings. The Ephesians had told him not to go. He's rejecting their warnings, and yet these Phoenicians refuse to be judgmental. Rather than get mad because he doesn't heed their advice, they still love him. They still pray for him. They still want to support him. Apparently, they trusted in Paul's intentions, and they realized 
that it's up to every believer to follow God's will as they see it. We may disagree, but you've got to do what you feel like is best, and I've got to do what I feel like is best. Luke continues, When we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship, and they returned home. And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemaeus, greeted the brethren, and stayed with them one day. Ptolemaeus was the ancient name for the Israeli port of Akko. It was just a short voyage down from Tyre. And notice Paul found, found fellowship here as well. Paul found fellowship wherever he went. For on the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the evangelist. Again, Paul found fellowship. Caesarea is 30 miles south of Akko, and it was the Roman capital in Israel. And if you've ever been with us on a trip to Israel, you know why Philip settled in Caesarea. It is a gorgeous, beautiful little seaside village. The water and the sky are the bluest blue. If I was going to settle somewhere, it'd be Caesarea. And Paul entered the house of Philip, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Paul's host here in Caesarea, Philip, appears three times in the book of Acts. In chapter 6, Philip is one of the seven original deacons who served in the first church there at Jerusalem. In chapter 8, he is an evangelist who leads a revival in Samaria and an Ethiopian to Christ on the road to Gaza. And here, he and his family are living in Caesarea, a part of the church there. And notice verse 9. Now this man, Philip, had four virgin daughters who prophesied. Philip's girls. He had four girls. He had four girls, and they were special, both sexually pure and spiritually sensitive. You know, most daughters are always reminding, or most dads are always reminding their daughters of God's will. But Philip's daughters spoke God's will to their dad and even to the church. They prophesied. The Spirit had blessed them with prophetic gifts. And you got to admire Philip. He was a servant in the church, he was an evangelist to the lost. And he was a godly dad to his daughters. And in my mind, this trifecta is what marks a great man. Can he juggle the balls at church and in the world and at home? Is he faithful in all three arenas? You know, it's been said, we come into the world head first, we leave feet first, and in between it's all a matter of balance. And Philip here, he lived a beautifully balanced life. I admire him. You know, some guys do well in the world, but they fail at home. And they neglect their church. Other men serve the church and safeguard their home, but they have no witness in the world. What made Philip great was that he excelled in all three arenas. And then verse 10 tells us, And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And we've seen Agabus before. Remember back in chapter 11, he predicted a famine. Now, these verses do give us a glimpse into the life of the early church and the important role 
that prophecy played. You see, the Holy Spirit was active in the early church. They didn't carry Bibles with them. The Bible wasn't there yet. The Holy Spirit, though, spoke and was active through unplanned, ecstatic communications. God would speak through prophets and through prophetesses to the church. In other words, God would instant message his people through prophecy. He still does, by the way. And when Agabus had come to us, he took Paul's belt, his sash that he would fold around his robe. He bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Here, Agabus acts like an Old Testament prophet. You remember the Old Testament prophets, they would deliver their messages with visual aids. You remember how Jeremiah went down to the river and buried a sash. Ezekiel laid on his side and dug a hole in the wall of his house, all to illustrate his messages. Here, Agabus also goes theatrical. The prophet grabs Paul's belt off of him and he turns it into handcuffs. There's an arrest in Paul's future if he goes to Jerusalem. Twice now, the Holy Spirit has warned Paul of the danger awaiting him. But in verse 12, now when, he, when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. What do you say to that kind of dedication? For a sold-out Paul, it was Jerusalem or bust. Nothing was going to persuade him to steer clear of Jerusalem, not even the threat of death. If necessary, Paul was willing to lay down his life for Jesus' sake to preach the gospel to the Jews in Jerusalem. You know, the highest award given by the U.S. government for an act of bravery on the battlefield is the Congressional Medal of Honor. Over the course of our history, 3,512 medals have been awarded, usually by the president. It's interesting that more medals of honor have been awarded for falling on hand grenades to save fellow soldiers than any other act of valor. Since falling on a live grenade is usually fatal, those medals are awarded posthumously. Well, whatever, posthumously. Actually came out better right now than it did when I was practicing it earlier. You know what I mean. Yet here, Paul falls on a hand grenade before the pin is pulled. Think about it. He's told his trip is going to end in incarceration, but he's still determined. Whatever it takes, whatever it costs, he believes God has called him to preach the gospel. You have to admire Paul's courage. May we model it in our lives. And then verse 14, so when he would not be persuaded, we ceased saying, the will of the Lord be done. Now, apparently, everyone heard the prophecy correctly. There was danger for Paul in Jerusalem. But you see, people apply prophecy differently. 
And in light of the warning, Paul stiffened his resolve to go anyway, whereas his pals thought he needed to reconsider and change his plans. Again, they all understood the prophecy. It had come from God, but they differed in its application. And this highlights how subjective it can be when we discern God's will. The same warning can be discerned by one person as a caution and by another person as a stop sign. Paul and his pals, obviously, they saw this differently and they debated the matter back and forth. But in the end, they stuck together. Paul's friends respected their leader. They recognized his authority and they followed him, though they disagreed. And here's a big lesson for us. What happens when you disagree with someone over God's will in a given situation? Especially when that someone is a person in authority over you. What do you do when your pastor or your boss or a parent makes a determination concerning God's will, an interpretation that affects you and you object? Paul's pals had the right approach. They disagreed with Paul and they were quite verbal and vocal in letting him know. Yet when he rejected their advice, They submitted to his authority, and they trusted God to guide him and still followed. In fact, they even helped Paul pack. Notice what Luke says. And after those days, we packed and went up to Jerusalem. You know, for some of us, this is a tough pill to swallow. You know, it's often difficult to submit to someone else's authority, especially when we differ on a special or critical issue. Reminds me of the hand dryer in the employee restroom. Above it, a disgruntled worker had written, for a message from the boss, press the button. Someone harbored a little bitterness there. He felt his boss was full of hot air. And it would have been easy for bitterness to develop in Paul's pals. You know, it's no problem following until the leader takes a path that you don't want to travel. I remember a friend of mine once telling me, Sandy, it's not really submission until you disagree. It's true. Realize I'm not talking about a decision that's unbiblical or that's immoral or that's unethical. Those are the easy choices. You know, you follow the right principle, not the person. What I'm talking about are these subjective, amoral kinds of issues. What do you do when your pastor or your husband or your boss chooses a path that you're not so sure about? He even has you carry some of the baggage. You help him pack. The consequences of his decision are going to affect you as well. What do you do? Well, here's what Paul's friends did. First, they recognized Paul's intentions were good. Now, he was definitely hard-headed, but nobody doubted he was soft-hearted. His desire was to go to Jerusalem. And why? Because of his love for Jesus and because of his love for the Jews. No one could argue about that. Secondly, they might not have agreed with Paul in this matter, but they trusted God to guide him. And this is important. Rather than abandon ship because they disagreed with the skipper, they remembered who was ultimately at the helm. On the road to Damascus, God had knocked Paul off his high horse. God had done it once. He could do it again if necessary. You see, they believed two truths. That Paul followed Jesus, and even more so, 
that Jesus would lead Paul. And then third, they kept the comma. They kept the comma. Read verse 14 without the first comma. We see saying, the will of the Lord be done. In other words, we give up. We waste our breath. If Paul wants to jump off a cliff, just let him. We cease saying, the will of the Lord be done. But thankfully, that wasn't their attitude. That's not how they read it. They kept the comma. Read verse 14 with the comma. We ceased saying, the will of the Lord be done. They stopped debating. They stopped questioning. And they trusted God to guide their leader. That's faith. Paul's pals are a good example to us. They saw his good intentions. They trusted God to override any mistake he might make. And they gave Paul the benefit of the doubt. And they kept the calm. And then verse 16. Also, some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. Now, the year is probably 58 A.D., Jesus' resurrection had been 25 years earlier. And there were now people like Nason who had believed in Jesus for over a quarter of a century. Now they were recognized as early disciples. That's interesting. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. Now Jerusalem is another 65 miles southeast of Caesarea. And when Paul arrives, he gets a warm welcome. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James. This was the leader of the church at the time. This was the half-brother of our Lord Jesus. James was the leader of the Jerusalem church at the time. And all the elders were present. When Paul had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. But they had a concern. As they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. The church leaders in Jerusalem appreciate the freedom enjoyed by the Gentiles. And they acknowledge that a right standing with God is obtained not by keeping the law, but by believing in Jesus. And yet there were Jewish believers in the church who leaned hard toward legalism. They trusted in grit more so than in grace. The church leaders go on in verse 21. But they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. That just wasn't true. Paul never told the Jews that they couldn't circumcise their sons. Nor did he advocate abandoning Jewish custom. If a Jew wanted to maintain his Jewishness, then fine. Paul had just pointed out that obedience to the law could never make a person right with God. So you can be a devout Jew. You can keep all the rules and all the commands and still be dead in your sin. Righteousness isn't earned by good works. It's a gift of grace. A right standing with God is obtained and maintained by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. 
And because Paul championed grace, he was branded an enemy of Judaism. Now, James knows that Paul is headed for a showdown with the Jewish hierarchy, and he predicts it in verse 22. He says, what then? The assembly, that is the Sanhedrin, the Jewish court, must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. James knows what's about to happen, but his response to it is questionable. He says, therefore, do what we tell you. And here's his suggestion. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. Now, here's James's suggestion. Four Jewish men are to take a vow. And here's how it might have worked. They would, they would take time off from work. They would enter into the temple. They would shave their heads as a pledge to God. And then over the duration of their vow, their hair would grow again. At the vow's conclusion, they would then return to the temple, shave a second time, and then offer their shaved hair as a sacrifice to God. Now, James is saying that if Paul financially supports these vow takers while they're out of work and even joins them in the ritual, then he can make a statement to the Jews that he isn't opposed to their customs and to their rituals. See, James saw this as a show of respect to the law that stopped short of compromising the gospel. And Paul agreed with him. You remember Paul had said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, To the Jews I became a Jew, that I might win the Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. In other words, Paul was willing to relate to people culturally in order to win them over spiritually. And that's what Paul believed that he was doing here. And James wants to be clear that he's not compromising the gospel at all. He reaffirms freedom from the Gent- for the Gentiles in verse 25. He says, but concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. And James refers to the decision reached in Acts chapter 15 by the Jerusalem council that was already guiding the Gentile churches. And we talked about that when we were there. Now, this seems like a good plan. Will it work? No, not hardly. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. Now, when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place, the temple. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. James and Paul had had a plan, but it plan backfired. These radical, legalistic Jews, we call them Judaizers, who had opposed Paul throughout Galatia and Asia, were based in Jerusalem. And now Paul is on their home turf. A confrontation is inevitable. Now it's been said everywhere Paul went, he either sparked a riot or a revival. 
In Jerusalem, it was a riot. Verse 29, for they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, whom they supposed, supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. And all the city was disturbed, and the people ran together, seized Paul, and dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. A sign hung above the door in the court of Israel, which was the inner sanctum of the Jewish temple, which read, No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught so doing will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. In other words, a Gentile that went beyond that door would surely be stoned. So when Paul's enemies saw him on Jerusalem's streets with Trophimus, the Ephesian who they knew was a Gentile, they used it to falsely accuse Paul of escorting Trophimus into the temple. That was a lie. They had no proof that he had done so. They'd assumed it. It was a lie born out of their hatred toward Paul and their prejudice toward Gentiles. And so the Jews grabbed Paul. They dragged him out of the temple and they prepared to stone him. Now, as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. On the northwest corner of the Temple Mount, Rome had built a fortress. It's a police precinct that they used to help keep order on the Temple Mount. As many as a thousand troops were stationed in the fortress of Antonio, especially during the feasts. And so when news of the mob reached the fortress, a garrison was dispatched. And the Romans arrived in the nick of time to save Paul, verse 32. The commander immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they, these radical Judaizers, saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The Roman soldiers break up an illegal lynching. Then the commander came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains. And he asked him who he was and what he had done. And some among the multitude cried one thing and some another. And so when he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded him to be taken into the barracks. Now when he had reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people followed after, crying out, away with him. I mean, the temple mount was out of control. The place was a frenzy. They were fighting off this mob. The police were there. The Romans were there fighting off these crazy people. Boy, they had a good plan, hadn't they? It did work. Then as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I speak to you? And he replied, can you speak Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led the 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? It was a case of mistaken identity. The Roman commander thought that Paul was some Egyptian who three years earlier had stirred up trouble in the temple. He had led a group of Jews to the Mount of Olives and he commanded the city walls to fall down. And when they didn't, the mob had turned on him. His commander remembered all this and thought that Paul was this Egyptian. But Paul said, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city. I mean, I'm from a prominent place, Tarsus. And I implore you 
Permit me to speak to these people. And to me, this is, a, this is amazing. This is totally incredible. You, you talk about poise under fire. You talk about holding on to your purpose even in the midst of chaos. Paul asks this Roman commander if he can address the mob that has just been threatening his life. Paul sees this as the moment he has waited for for the last 20 years. This is his opportunity to preach to the Jewish establishment in Jerusalem. The establishment of which he was a part of, remember? For he was the rabbi who years earlier had murdered Stephen and had overseen Stephen's stoning. And now this is Paul's opportunity to share with these same people the gospel of God's grace, of Jesus Christ. Paul is now blind to all but one ambition, and that's to preach the gospel to his countrymen. And so when he had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language saying, Paul had spoken Greek to the Roman commander, but he now addresses the Jews in Hebrew in his and their mother tongue. And we'll study what he says next week. (laughs) 